Welcome back to the listener's commentary on the book of Hebrews. In this recording, we come to the final chapter of the book of Hebrews and our final recording in our study of this book. In this section, we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 through 25. And the last section that ended at the end of chapter 12 was really the rhetorical climax of the book. The author had worked up to his final major point, his final really appeal to say, look, you've come to Mount Zion. And so the seriousness and the significance and the importance of that means let's, let's listen to God and let's take what we've come to seriously. Here now in chapter 13, he wraps things up with just a series of practical instructions for the original audience and for us related to what does it look like to live out faithful faith. And then he signs off with a benediction and some final words. And so chapter 13 is a wrap-up of the book with practical instructions for Christian living. And this is how it begins. It says in verse 1, let love of the brothers and sisters continue. And so the first instruction is keep loving your brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, the word for love of the brothers is actually one word in Greek, Philadelphia. It's the classical Greek word for brotherly and sisterly love, like between siblings. And here it refers to your fellow Christians, like Christians are God's family and so must love each other like their brothers and sisters. In fact, Jesus made it very clear in John chapter 13 that the mark that will distinguish his followers from the world is love. They will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. And so Christians are routinely and consistently called to love each other uh, with serious, deep, brotherly and sisterly love. And so let love of the brothers and sisters continue. Uh, the next instruction in verse 2 is, Do not neglect hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. The Greek word for hospitality literally is lover of strangers. That's what it means. And welcoming people into your home was a deep social value in the Middle East then, really is still to this day. It's just kind of part of the social structure. You welcome people into your home. You set food before them and you make sure they're taken care of. And in the first century, hotels and inns were rare. They were expensive. They typically had a bad reputation. Um, and so when, when people came to town, like ex hospitality was necessary. It was a key way of demonstrating love. And so when it says, let love of the brothers and sisters continue in verse one, well, one of the ways you could do that um, on an ongoing basis was by showing hospitality to your fellow Christians who came to town. And this was important in the early church. In fact, Christians practiced this by opening up their homes to their fellow believers who were coming to town, whether they were traveling teachers, whether they were businessmen, fellow Christians who were in town on business, uh, whether they were Christians who were having to flee their hometown because of persecution and opposition. And so Christians regularly welcomed fellow believers into their home and cared for them. Now, apparently this led to some problems in the early church. We can kind of get a sense of that, for example, in the Didache. The Didache is a collection of early church teachings, and it warned that every traveler who claimed to be a Christian should be welcomed, but after the initial reception, it was proper to put the person's belief to the test, to make sure they weren't a spy, that they weren't just someone to try to find Christians and figure out where they were meeting, that was it a real Christian or not. Um, 
um, and that a person's stay should, you know, be limited to two or three days. This was a way of making sure that people weren't just taking advantage of the hospitality and the love and the kindness of their fellow Christians. The supreme example of such hospitality in the Hebrew scriptures is uh, Abraham and how he hosted the three angelic visitors in the book of Genesis. And that's actually what's probably alluded to here by entertained angels without knowing that it, it took Abraham a while to recognize who it was that he was hosting for dinner and welcoming into his tent there in Genesis. And so that's probably what's alluded to by that final phrase of this verse. Then he goes on in verse 3 and he says, Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them, and those who are badly treated, since you yourselves are also in the body. In chapter 10, verse 34, the author said that they had cared for prisoners in the past, and so here they're called to continue doing so. Remember them. And probably foremost in their minds is not just like a general criminal population in prison, but rather persecuted Christians who have been in prison for their beliefs. That's probably what the author is most specifically referring to. And this was necessary in the prison system of their day. that It didn't really provide for their needs. You were dependent on the care of family and friends when you were in prison. We see an example of this in Paul's ministry, how his friends cared for him in prison. You can uh, read about that in Acts chapter 24, verse 23, where they, they cared for him there when he was in prison in Caesarea. And, and even in Acts chapter 28, um, when he's in, under house arrest in Rome, how people are coming to him and visiting him. We know the Philippians sent him a gift during that time period. And so this was just the way it worked in the ancient world, that when you were in prison, um, you were dependent on the provision and the care of your family and friends. And so he's reminding them, make sure you don't forget them. They need you. Uh, and care for them, and do so as though in prison with them, which heightens the motivation, like as if we we know that need, we can sense that, and so make sure you, you don't take it for granted. And then he even says, remember those who are badly treated, since you yourselves are in the body. We can identify with uh, the prisoners and the ill-treated, since we're in the, the body, we know what it's like to suffer. We know what it's like to be in need. We can sympathize with them, and so remember them. The next practical instruction he gives in verse 4 is, Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterers. And this verse really summarizes the consistent message of the Bible concerning the really the, the, the goodness and the beauty and the purity of the state of marriage and uh, sex within marriage. Notice he says, marriage is to be held in honor. Like, it's an honorable thing. And so don't demean, don't look down on, don't minimize the significance of marriage. Hold it in honor. And along with that, the marriage bed is to be undefiled. The marriage bed refers to sex within marriage. And notice it says it's to be undefiled. This is important because it starts pure. It starts uh, holy, don't dirty it, don't sully it uh, by uh, sexual unfaithfulness. Keep it pure because that's what it is. And he says, God will hold the sexually immoral and the adulterers accountable. He'll judge them. And the word for uh, sexually immoral there, pornaya, is just for all sorts of illegal, illicit, immoral sexual activity, whatever that is. And then adulterers is specifically those who have sex with somebody who's not their spouse. God's going to hold them accountable and judge them for that. And so keep the marriage bed pure. 
goes on in verse 5 to another practical instruction and says, make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. Um, according to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And so here in Hebrews, he says, make sure that your character is free from that, free from the love of money, free from greed and trying to get rich and all of that. Instead, be content with what you have. That is the really the proper relationship to money and to wealth. That's the antidote to the love of money is contentment. Uh, I think 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 actually states a good balance where it tells us that don't fix your hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly enjoys or supplies us with all things to enjoy. And so you can enjoy the stuff you have. Just don't find your identity and your meaning and your hope in those things. That's a good balance. And so be content. Be content. Enjoy what you have. Um, but but don't constantly be craving more and more and more where you're driven by the love of money and stuff. What's the basis for such contentment? What's the basis for being free from the love of money? Well, it's God's promise. Look what he says in the rest of verse 5 and into verse 6. He says, For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever abandon you, so that we can confidently say, The Lord is my help, for I will not be afraid, what will man do to me? And that first little bit, I will never desert you nor abandon you, doesn't seem to be a direct quote from any one passage. It is a promise that's a general summary of a common Old Testament theme, that God is with his people, that God is present to his people. He doesn't desert or abandon his people um, or forsake them. And so it takes this general Old Testament theme and says, here's God's promise to be with us. Therefore, we can confidently say, and then he does quote from Psalm 118 verses 6 and 7. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Um, that passage out of Psalm 118 is in a context all about trusting in God. In fact, the immediate context says it's better to trust in God than to trust in human beings. Um, that passage in Psalm 118 emphasizes that God's purposes will be achieved and that the plans and purposes of the wicked, they will be subverted and undone. And that's why we can be content because God is with us and he'll never abandon us and he is trustworthy and thus we can count on him to fulfill his purposes and his plans for us. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can people do to me? Then he goes on in verse 7 uh, to, to talk about their leaders and says, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their way of life, imitate their faith. And so he directs their attention to those who spoke the word of God to them, probably referring to those who initially preached the gospel to them and established them in Christ. And he tells them to consider the result of their way of life. The word considering there literally is actually more like watching and paying attention to. It's not just thinking about. It's like observing and studying and learning from their whole manner of life, like the way they organize their life and the way they carry out their life and how they spend their time how they relate to their family and to uh, their neighbors and to the people around them. Observe all that. Watch all of that. And then he says, imitate them. Imitate their faith. 
the reality is, is discipleship requires concrete examples. And so we need to watch people who are further down the line in the faith than us so that we can see how to live out our faith. And so he he calls them here to take the leaders who preach the gospel to them and establish them in the faith and says, now, observe their way of life and imitate it. Put it into practice. Just as the Apostle Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And so watch your leaders and imitate them. And then he says in verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And this is a beautiful testimony to Jesus' unchanging, reliable nature. It reminds us that he can be trusted and he can be counted on and that he's not fickle and vacillating and one day he's one way and another day he's another way. He is consistent and trustworthy and unchanging. And the reason it probably shows up in context here is because those leaders that he had just mentioned in verse 7, well, they preached Jesus to the original audience. And Jesus doesn't change. And so when you imitate their faith and their faithfulness to Jesus, you're learning the way of Jesus, the same Jesus that they believed in and trusted. And he's the same today and he's the same forever. Well, then he goes on and basically says, since Jesus is unchanging, they need to stay true to the word of God that they were taught. So look at verse 9. He says, don't be misled by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. Food here probably refers to the food laws of the Jews in general, the food laws of the old covenant in general. But based on verse 10, it also seems to include the sacrificial meals that were eaten by the priests in the tabernacle and the temple. So what he has in mind is stuff about food from the old covenant. And he says, rather than Uh, relying on those things or thinking those things are so important. Let your heart be strengthened by grace. Don't be misled by teachings that say you got to eat this food and you can't eat that food. And, and, And really, he's just thinking about those food laws of the old covenant. And he's saying, no, don't rely on those things. Let your heart actually be strengthened by God's grace. In fact, he goes on and says, Uh, This in verse 10, for we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. Thinking about food and food laws and the sacrificial meals that the priests would eat in the temple or the tabernacle, he says, we have an altar, which is a figurative expression really that's used to Uh, describe the entire sacrificial work of Jesus. This is our altar. Our altar isn't a physical altar in the tabernacle or the temple in Jerusalem. Our altar is the sacrifice of Jesus. And so we have this altar from which those who serve, the priests are those who serve in the tabernacle. They have no right to eat of our altar, just like uh, priests could eat certain Uh, portions of the sacrifices and the rest of the Jews could not. Well, we as those in Christ, we, we consume the grace of God shown to us in the offering of Jesus. And those priests in the tabernacle or the temple, they don't have a right to eat that unless they want to come to faith in Jesus. And so the idea is that's the grace. That's where we find our, the strength of our hearts is the sacrifice of Jesus, not on the things that happen in the temple or the tabernacle. 
This then leads to an appeal to leave the old behind and go out to Jesus. And that appeal is based on a comparison between the Old Testament sacrifices and Jesus' sufferings. Look what he says in verse 11. He says, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. The sin offerings under the Old Covenant were to be taken outside the camp, according to Leviticus chapter 6, and burned there outside the camp and removed from the camp of Israel. Well, since Jesus was the ultimate and final sin offering, as the authors explain, he too suffered outside the camp. That is, outside the city of Jerusalem. Look at verse 12. Therefore, Jesus also suffered outside the gate that he might sanctify the people through his own blood. And so just as the sin offerings were taken outside the camp to be disposed of, so Jesus suffered outside the city wall of Jerusalem. And, and when you look at the map of first century Jerusalem and, and the most likely place where Jesus died, it's outside the city wall. That's the idea here. He, he was led outside of the city to the hill to die in order to cleanse and sanctify the people through his offering, through his suffering. Well, that then leads to a general appeal to the original audience and by extension to us that says this in verse 13, so then, let us go to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. Like, just as he suffered outside the city, well, let's go outside the city, outside the camp. Leave Jerusalem behind. Leave all the cities of this world behind and identify with Jesus and share in his reproach, share in the shame he suffered by being led outside the city and to, to be executed as a common criminal. For, verse 14, here... In this world, we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come, the heavenly Jerusalem that's going to come in fullness when it relocates from heaven to earth, that eternal city that was mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. That's the city we're looking forward to. And so let's not identify with the cities of this world. For the original audience, that meant specifically the city of Jerusalem where they found their identity as Jews. Uh, he says, let's go out to him. Let's go out to Jesus, out of the city, and identify with him. And in view of that, what should, what should they do? What should we do? Well, he mentions then three specific actions that he calls them to uh, as they identify with Jesus. He says in verse 15, through him then, let's continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips, praising his name. This is our worship, praising God. And so we go out to Jesus and we offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. We worship God and praise his name. And so our sacrifice is to speak words of praise to God. Then he says in verse 16, and do not neglect doing good and sharing for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Again, notice the use of the imagery of sacrifice. He's appealing to us that we have a form of worship. It's different than the, what took place in the temple or the tabernacle. But nevertheless, here is our worship. And so it's not just praising God. It's also doing good and sharing, meaning taking care of God's people. Uh, acts of benevolence, doing good, sharing 
The Greek word behind sharing is koinonia, which refers to the practical sharing and the needs of others, caring for others. With such sacrifices, God is pleased. And so when we give to take care of the needs of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, God is pleased with that. That's a form of our worship. And then the third action that he gives in verse 17 is obey your leaders and submit to them. For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account so that they may do this with joy, not groaning, for this would be unhelpful for you. And so obey your leaders and submit to them. Christians are directed to arrange themselves under their spiritual leaders in their church and to obey them. Um, And he says, and, and make sure that they do this with joy, right? Like, like not with groaning, like don't make it hard on them to lead you because you're so cantankerous, so difficult, so hard to get along with. God wants us to arrange ourselves under our spiritual leaders with an attitude of submission. Notice how he describes the leaders here as those who keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Like Christian leaders have their own responsibilities. So, Uh, The members of the church, they're directed to obey and submit to their leaders, but leaders are described as those who have to give an account. Like They have to give an account to God for their leadership and for their care of the the souls of God's people. And, And that's their fundamental responsibility as described here is they keep watch over your souls. Their job is to care for you, to help you be faithful, to protect you from false teaching and and things that would lead you away from Jesus. Their job is to keep watch over your souls and they have to give an account for that. And so both um, Christian leaders and members of the church, they have their own responsibilities and they're both accountable to God for how they do that. Then, The author invites the original readers to pray for himself and those with him in verse 18. Look what he says. He says, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. And so that's our desire. Pray for us that that will be the case, that we'll always uh, act in good conscience, that we'll conduct ourselves in an honorable way in every way. He says in verse 19, I urge you all the more to do this so that I may be restored to you more quickly. Now, we know so little about the author and the original background to the book of Hebrews that we don't fully know what's keeping him from being restored to them, but he's inviting them to pray for him and pray specifically that he would be able to come back and be reunited with them um, and hoping that uh, through their prayers, he can be restored to them much more quickly. This invitation to prayer indicates that even though we don't know who the writer uh, of the book of Hebrews is, right? it's unsigned, there's no name attached to it, The original author expected the original audience to know exactly who he was. They had a relationship. They knew each other, and he's just assuming uh, that they know him, and he expects them to pray for him and that they can be reunited much more quickly. Then he offers a benediction for them, really a, a prayer of worship, really, for them. And so here's the benediction of the book of Hebrews, verse 20. Now, may the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, that is Jesus, who raised Jesus up from the dead and describes Jesus as the great shepherd of the sheep, the ultimate one who's leading and caring for the flock, the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, that is Jesus Christ our Lord. May that God equip you in every good thing to do his will, 
working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Ah, what a beautiful benediction that is, uh, inviting God to work in them every good thing to do his will. And so there's this uh, acknowledgement of God's greatness. He's the God of peace. He's the God who raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep. And the call, the prayer really is to equip them in every good thing to do his will. Working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. To him be the glory forever and ever. And then with that, you get the final words and greetings and sign off to the book of Hebrews. Verse 22. But I urge you, brothers and sisters, listen patiently to this word of exhortation, for I've written to you briefly. Um, so he calls this a brief word of exhortation. And he, he one final reminder, listen to this. Take this seriously. Take it to heart. Do what I've called you to do in this letter. Then he says, know that our brother Timothy has been released with whom, if he comes soon, I will see you. And so Timothy, presumably the same Timothy who was a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul, he's been released, which implies that he had been in prison. And we have no record of that in Acts or in any other book in um, the New Testament. So we don't really know exactly when this would have been. But Timothy, if we're talking about the same one that was a traveling companion of Paul, which makes the most sense, um, had been in prison, has been released, and the author is a companion of Timothy, and he's expecting that if Timothy plans on coming to see the original audience, he's going to come along with them at some point in the future, hopefully soon. Then he says in verse 24, greet all of your leaders and all the saints. So greet your leaders and all the saints, that is all of God's people, all those set apart as belonging to God in Christ. And then those from Italy greet you. That last line there, those from Italy greet you, can mean that the author is writing from Italy um, to people outside of Italy and just saying, hey, the, the, the people that I am with greet you from Italy. Or he could be writing outside of Italy and he has some Italians with him and maybe he's writing to people in Italy and they want to send their specific greetings. It's not clear. Um, unfortunately, sometimes scholars have made way too much of that phrase and assumed that this means that Paul is writing to people in Rome. I just don't think we can know that from this. This just means that there are people that uh, are from Italy that are sending greetings to the original audience wherever the original audience is at. Uh, and then he ends the book of Hebrews with a simple sign-off, grace be with you all. May God's grace be with you. And with that, the book of Hebrews wraps up. And so as we wrap up our study of the book of Hebrews, may we remember that Hebrews really is a serious and a deep call to live faithfully to Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, the one final ultimate sacrifice who has provided eternal redemption for our sins. So be faithful to him and remain true to him all the days of your life. Hey, thanks for joining me on this study in the listener's commentary of the book of Hebrews. The listener's commentary is a listener-supported, crowdfunded Bible teaching ministry made possible by the generosity of folks just like you. So thanks a ton to those of you who support this ministry. And if you want to join the team of supporters, you can do so by going to listenerscommentary.com, listenerscommentary.com, clicking the Give button, and you can set up a recurring monthly donation right there, or you can give a one-time gift if you prefer to do that. Another great way to support the Listener's Commentary is by setting up a donation through the Listener's Commentary Study Hub. Um, you, again, you can visit the listenerscommentary.com, click sign up for the study hub. You can learn all the details there about the study hub. 
and you can set up a donation that way as well and get access to all my online courses and an ever-increasing amount of tools and resources to help you dig in and study the Bible for yourself. Let me just say in advance, thanks a ton for your support.